This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. We are in the midst of Season 8. My name is David Dalt and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. And I teach at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York. He's the Duns Scotus Professor of Spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. And he is a columnist at National Catholic Reporter. And I also want to welcome my friend Heidi Schlumpf, Executive Editor of National National Catholic Reporter. Welcome, Dan. Welcome, Heidi. Happy Easter to both of you. He is risen. Alleluia. Happy Easter. We can all use the A word again. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith and occasionally to say Alleluia. We also have special bonus segments for all you friends of Frank. That's over on Patreon. You can find out more about that on our website. Please do follow us at FrancisFXPod on Twitter and Facebook. And if you want to send us an email, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. Today, we're going to be talking about three topics. We're going to be talking about the Derek Chauvin trial. We're going to be talking about the recent SB202 Georgia voting laws. And we're going to be talking about what life might look like after COVID. But before we get to all that, let's do a little bit of checking in. Heidi, how have you been and how was your Easter? My Easter was great. I'm just back after a week's vacation. So I took Holy Week off and was able to spend time with family hang out at home. We did a little bit of traveling to Southern Illinois where we did some hiking. I went to St. Louis and saw the arch. So we're not fully vaccinated in our family yet, so only outdoor activities. But it was really good to take a break and spend a little time away from work. So I'm back refreshed and renewed and ready to hit the ground running this morning. And how about you, Dan? Yeah, similarly, uh, without the travel, uh, we had Easter here in in Chicago, and it was eventful because my local Franciscan community, there's six of us friars, before, in the before times, before the pandemic, it was very common for us to have some guests over for the holidays. We would celebrate Thanksgiving and Easter and so forth with a big meal in the afternoon. And in the past, we've invited colleagues and, and friends and One of the regular invitees is a a local community of Dominican sisters that that we're very close to as a community. Historically, the Franciscans and Dominicans were were essentially cousins. We were founded around the same time. But this was really the first time in almost two years that we've had anybody over. Their whole community is fully vaccinated. So is ours. And so is, you know, following the CDC protocols, a small grouping of people 
And it was wonderful. It was just, it was really nice to see other human beings and to talk with them in person in a shared space and to share a meal on such an important solemnity. You know, we're really grateful for that and and recognize how fortunate and privileged we are to be able to do that. Now, there are a lot of folks either still waiting for the vaccine or for various reasons can't have that kind of experience. And so we certainly kept all of, all of those folks in our prayers. But I imagine that as my friend who's a diocesan priest here in Chicago said to me on Easter Sunday, he said, what a difference a year makes. If we think about what Holy Week was like last year, everything was shut down absolutely. There was no in-person anything. And to think about just the, the kind of breaking through of, of daylight into the darkness of, of the pandemic has been really striking. And so it's still not the same, but it's something pretty nice. And so we give give thanks for that. David, what, what's Easter been like for you and the family adult? Well, it's weird. And I, I've been thinking about writing about this because the Holy Week did not feel like the Holy Week at all. It Easter didn't really feel like Easter. It, it's strange to be this apart from the liturgical cycles of the church. And I did try and meditate a little bit on resurrection and what that means. My family didn't do a lot of liturgical stuff this Holy Week. We talked about it, but we didn't really, we did ortho-talking, I guess is what we did instead of ortho-doing. You know, we, we've been double bubbling with my wife's parents who live here in our neighborhood. And so they're fully vaccinated. My wife's fully vaccinated. I'm half vaccinated. And so we had a chance to go over and, and have dinner with them on Easter. And that was good. And there were there were good kind of familial things. There were a lot of family-intensive things. In terms of just being around the house. And we had a game night on Saturday night, which is always a lot of fun. But in terms of Easter, it, it didn't feel like I would have hoped it would, or I don't even know how to say it. It's just, it, it feels like a weird kind of alien time right now. I would agree. Yeah, that, that was my experience too. Can I ask something um, uh, that I meant to ask on our last episode as we were checking in, David? How is the 5K training going? Yeah, so we had a really bad bout of winter weather here in Chicago, and so we stopped doing it. And then we, I, I've mentioned on earlier episodes that we have family meetings, and so at our last family meeting, we talked about how are we going to get back into the 5K. And so we've begun with uh, long family walks, and we've been doing that several times a week. And I think in the next week or so, we're going to get back into the actual training that we were in, my wife and my son training together and my daughter and I training together. So I'm hoping that we'll actually be back to it because I really enjoyed running with my daughter and I'm looking forward to doing more of that. So it got sidetracked, but we're going to get back on it soon. Well, the Chicago weather is cooperating now, and I know the really nice warm temperatures helped me feel springy and Easter, but I'm with you, David. Virtual church is just not doing it for me, especially during Holy Week and, and Easter. So we belong to a parish on the north side, St. Gertrude's, that has a gym mass community. So a number of people that go to a mass that's held in the school gym, and it's it was got an interesting history of people from various parishes who were eventually welcomed into St. Gertrude. And it's a different kind of mass. We have discussion homilies and just a more informal atmosphere. And it does the best Easter liturgy with liturgical dance and some music that I only get to sing once a year and just so many things in a huge egg hunt afterwards. And so missing those things was really hard this year. I think last year when it was just starting, 
we were still in the mode of we have to do this so we can stop the pandemic. But this year, it's hard to be still missing your liturgical celebrations. And I know we're going to talk about that a little later in the podcast, too. Well, I think that you're raising a good point that you have a connection to a parish that you have a kind of multi-year depth with. We have a multi-year depth with our parish here in the neighborhood, but because of some of the reorganization that has been happening in all, all over the Chicago Archdiocese, in the past couple of years, in the kind of 18 months leading up to the pandemic, our parish was really undergoing an identity shift. And, re- and so in some ways we felt pushed out and we aren't quite sure how we fit with the parish as it's imagining itself right now now. So in that sense, we don't necessarily feel a loss of the rhythms because the rhythms themselves were hiccuping a bit as we were going into this big disruption with COVID. Well, and I'm familiar with that parish because it's my geographic parish as well that David's referring to. And I was actually in that space on Sunday because listeners may know that in the before times when we had normal liturgical cycles and schedules. When I'm in town, I I usually help out, have a mass or two at Calvert House, which is the Catholic campus ministry of the University of Chicago. And one of the interesting things about the three major Catholic campus ministries at non-Catholic universities in the Chicago Archdiocese was that each of them are established as parishes. They're not just Newman centers. They're not just uh, a a campus ministry center, but the University of Illinois at Chicago, Northwestern, and the University of Chicago have proper parishes. And so there's the whole life cycle, which is really interesting. You've got, it's primarily focused on the community there. So the students and graduate students and faculty and staff who are part of these campuses, but also the broader community. So there are families, there's the rights of initiation, there are religious education programs and this kind of thing. So it's really exciting. I bring that up because we, I I was with the uh, community for our Easter Sunday liturgy. I didn't preside this year, again, because of protocols and everything. It's complicated how these things work out. But they were able to use the space of St. Thomas the Apostle Parish, which was nice. And it was nice to see in person so many families and students and, and others, although it was hard to recognize some people because of masks. And, then, and it's interesting when you see families, how much kids grow in a year. It's, oh my gosh, I don't, I didn't even recognize the, this family unit because of the masks and, and all this kind of stuff. But it's really, it made all the difference to be with that group of people. And I felt very fortunate that we had the space because those who know Hyde Park in South Chicago and no St. Thomas. No, it's a very physically large parish, so it's, it's a pretty safe space. But that's another option, too, just to float that out there, that Calvert House is a, a parish proper. It's a unique thing here in the Diocese of Chicago, and I think it, it's pretty cool. Good to know, and I will keep that in mind as things return to whatever kind of normal they're going to be. And we'll be getting into that conversation later in the show where we're talking about what things might be looking like post-COVID. But for now, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Thanks for being with us. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens informed by our shared Catholic faith. Though the 2020 election cycle is marked by unprecedented circumstances and even outbreaks of violence, the election officials in the state of Georgia stood out as a model of integrity. Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and election official Gabriel Sterling withstood pressures from the White House, national scrutiny, and even death threats in dispatching their duties to deliver fair and accurate election results. 
With those events barely behind us, the Republican-controlled Georgia state legislature has wasted no time in putting forth measures designed to discourage minority voting in the state and to create conditions where a repeat of the circumstances of 2020 might yield very different results. SB 202, the name of the law, was the measure adopted by the legislature and signed into law by Georgia Governor Brian Kemp last week. The new law restricts the availability of absentee ballots and requires all absentee ballots to be counted by 5 p.m. the day after elections. The law also reduces the number of voting locations and ballot drop boxes throughout the state. More disturbing, SB 202 makes it a crime to pass out food or water to those who will likely be waiting in very long lines. But the most disturbing development is that final control over election procedures and election results has been removed from the direction of the Secretary of State and now placed with partisan officials appointed by the Republican legislature itself. Lawmakers have argued that these measures are designed to correct, quote, irregularities that arise during the last election cycle, end quote, while critics have called the measure a kind of, quote, Jim Crow 2.0, end quote, which will have the result of disenfranchising minority and vulnerable voters. No matter what else occurs, the measures are sure to be challenged in the courts. David, as listeners know by this point, you grew up in Georgia, you lived in Georgia, Georgia's on your mind. What are we to think about all of this? Well, not only did I grow up and live in Georgia, but also during college, I got an internship and went back and worked for the public defender in one of the most prosecutorial counties in Georgia and got a chance to see some of the systems of corruption up close, I'm sad to say. And when I say corruption, I mean people who would be driving down I-85 and I-185 that connected Atlanta and the city that I grew up in, and they would be, if they were persons of color, oftentimes they would be pulled over, and even though they had no drugs in the car, drugs would be found in the car, those kinds of things. So this is of a piece with a lot of other things that are oppressive to minorities in the state. The thing that I really want to hone in the most on is this last piece that you talked about, Dan, the fact that lawmakers have now put in place these things where the secretary of state is no longer in charge of the election board and that any member of the election administration at any point in the process at any precinct in Georgia can be removed and replaced by a board that is appointed by partisan legislators. And that's the most distressing of all of these sorts of pieces. In the, I mean, there's a lot that's distressing here. But in this particular case, if we had this law in place during the 2020 election, then as people like Raffensperger were trying to stand up against the misinformation, as people like Gabriel Sterling were standing up and saying, we're counting accurately, those people, Sterling could have been removed and a person who was more willing to do the bidding of the election board or the partisans on the election board could have been put in place. I realize that these are hypotheticals. These haven't happened yet, but because of the long history in Georgia, because of the fact that Georgia is one of the Jim Crow states, because up until the gutting of the voting rights law recently, Georgia was one of the states that was oftentimes put under greater scrutiny because it engaged in these kinds of practices. I think voters in Georgia have a lot to be worried about, and I'm worried very much for my friends in Georgia who are still there and who are trying to combat this. But I'd love to hear what you two think as well. I think what's happening in Georgia is very concerning, especially, obviously, the item about the no food and water to people waiting in long lines seems very contrary to just basic human decency and certainly our Christian faith. Now, 
my understanding of that portion of the law is that I think election officials can hand out food and water, and it's designed to stop electioneering from happening while people are in in line. But it's very concerning, not only these changes in Georgia, but the hundreds of bills that immediately happened after the 2020 election, and especially the, the the election in January, the special election in Georgia. And I think you can bet that if two Democrats had not been elected to the Senate in that special election, we would not be seeing these many changes in Georgia. So it's very concerning and even more concerning that our church is not speaking out on this. So we see corporations making decisions, pulling of the all-star game by Major League Baseball and other corporations speaking out. And yet the U.S. Bishops Conference or the bishops in Georgia, their Catholic conference has yet to speak out on this, at least as we're taping on Monday. Yeah, I think that's a really important point and something we can't emphasize greatly enough. This is a no-brainer. It's an absolute no-brainer when it comes to injustice in our society and the perpetuation of systemic racism. I want to come back to the point about the corporations in a moment there, Heidi, and the contrast with the bishops. So just to talk about the layers of when people say, oh, this isn't about race, this isn't about power, this isn't about partisanship, this is about irregularities, quote unquote, this kind of thing. That's complete nonsense, first of all. And what we see here is a deepening of what we experienced shortly before the 2018 midterm elections, where then Secretary of State, Brad, yeah, Brad Kemp, who's now no, it's not Brad Kemp. It's Brian Kemp, excuse me, um, who is now governor, won the, the gubernatorial race by something like 50,000 votes after purging the roles of hundreds of thousands of largely minority voters, or I should say minoritized voters. And uh, Stacey Abrams has been you know, tremendous in, in highlighting this injustice. She very likely would have won the governor's race had this really horrible process not unfolded. And, and I say horrible because there's also a deep conflict of interest when the person running for governor is also the secretary of state in charge of the election. You can see how insidious and, and circular this logic is. But as commentators also pointed out, the optics of this really betray the, the, the profound racialized history here and anti-black racism. Case in point is the now famous photograph of, of the signing ceremony in which Governor Kemp is signing this law, this discriminatory and oppressive law into action, into law. And he's doing so under the painting of the Callaway Plantation, which is a location in which black people were enslaved in Georgia. He was surrounded by only white men and most disturbingly, a black representative from the Georgia legislature was arrested outside that very room just for knocking on the door wanting to attend. And you can see videos online of this horrendous form of injustice taking place. So we see this, which brings me back to what you brought up, Heidi, in terms of the corporation responses. I'm no fan of unfettered capitalism. You know, that's part of my Catholic <laughs> perspective on the world. And all due respect to David's good close friends at the Acton Institute, they're smoking something that isn't Catholic social teaching, that's for sure. But nevertheless, I have to say that it's striking when you have these multinational and national corporations exercising a kind of moral leadership and at times conversion. And I want to speak just but to one example, which is Delta Airlines. I do not fly Delta Airlines. It's not a positional kind of take. It's not about any kind of values or anything. It's just I happen to fly more often with a different airline for years. But the current CEO of Delta Airlines is a St. Bonaventure University alum. He is an alum of my alma mater. 
where, you know, as a friar and an alum and as a trustee, I'm always keeping an eye out to see what's going on with Delta Airlines for this reason. And famously, the last few weeks, Delta and Coca-Cola came under initial scrutiny from particularly black activists in Georgia for not speaking out more directly. They put out these sort of milk toast statements about the importance of voter access and this sort of thing. But within two weeks, there was a change of heart in both Coca-Cola and Delta, two of the largest employers in the state of Georgia, condemned this. And then, as you said, Heidi, the Major League Baseball organization has withdrawn hosting the All-Star game there. I, I bring this all up because it's never too late. You know, the only time it's too late is when you don't do something. And so to our brother bishops, it's time we need to stand up and be clear about this. I think there's fear, like there is among a lot of these corporations and others, of being accused by the right wing media of, quote unquote, cancel culture. But the thing I keep coming back to is Delta and Coca-Cola and Major League Baseball are only canceling Georgia in the same way that the world economy canceled South Africa during apartheid. If you are committing oppression of your people, if you're committing injustices and people withhold financial support for that, they're on the right side of history. So as far as I'm concerned, these people who are lamenting cancel culture need to have a real examination of conscience. They need a reality check. I guess what I'd like to think that corporations are having moral awakenings or that these are moral stances that they're taking, and maybe in some cases that's true. But I think more, more often what we see is that they're just reflecting the majority opinion. A corporation takes a stand because they think it'll be good for business most of the time. And I think what they're looking at is their consumers and prospective consumers and they're seeing, especially among the age demographic that's important to them, the need to respond to what the majority thinks. And the majority of Americans are no longer on board with some of these real draconian kinds of things happening in these voting laws. Yeah, I think generally that's right. I would say 95% of that, Heidi, I'm on, on the same page with you until we dig a little bit deeper in some of these particular cases. So the board of Delta was pressuring the CEO not to make any kind of statement, to remain neutral, because there were direct consequences for that decision, which is the Republican state legislature of Georgia repealed tax credits. And so it cost the company $50 million to stand up and make this bold statement. And if you look, there's an article that just was released today. We're recording this on Monday, April 5th, in the front page of the New York Times, talking about how, in particular, Delta and Coca-Cola came to this decision at some real financial costs. But also, they zero in on this example from Delta, where there's a real reckoning. And this is where I admire the CEO. Now, again, I, I have mixed feelings about major corporations and billions of dollars and all this kind of stuff. But we need to bracket that just in this case to talk about the discernment. What does it take when you have to make the call and the buck stops with you? And it's interesting. Part of it is this real commitment to justice. And this isn't the first time that this company has done this. And I recommend, I'm sure we'll have in the show notes a link to that article. But, but I'll just say that it is, I think you're exactly right, Heidi, if there was a general consensus in a different direction and there was a fear of major or maybe more significant financial repercussions, it might go a different way. But I think there are also risks that some of these companies and organizations like Major League Baseball are taking. And I admire them for that because, yeah, there, there are consequences in all directions. They're not. And this is where they're filling in for a lot of people the gap or vacuum created by the silence of church leaders. For heaven's sake, where are the bishops on this? I'm really resonating with this conversation, and I just want to add one perspective as a person who spent, you know, 18 formative years in South Georgia. 
racism is so pervasive, the commitment to a certain type of status quo is so pervasive. I have observed directly communities acting again and again against their own economic self-interest in order to preserve certain ways of life that are tied to racism and tied to a certain perception of the way that we always do things. And I'm scare quoting that. And so there's always this sense of pushing against progress and even pushing against economic progress for the sake of a certain type of status quo. And we're seeing this here now on a statewide level, not just a community or a county level. We're seeing this now on a statewide level with corporations that bring in huge amounts of revenue and jobs. So not just Coca-Cola, not just Delta, but the film industry is also in Major League Baseball. So So all factors are basically saying no to Georgia, and the Georgia legislators are doubling down and doubling down on, if you don't like us, then we're just going to make it really economically painful for you. Can can I ask you both, because this is a question I've been pondering for the last week, how does this end? What, what is the end game? You said something, David, in the context of corporations making decisions and, and proceeding with policies and actions that undercut at times their own self-interest. But these Republican politicians in particular, because that's who's you know advancing this right now in this example, where does this end? It's overt oppression. I, I, I just don't understand how they think they're going to get away with this. I know they have for 400 years, but I, I don't know. What are your thoughts? I think past studies have shown that whenever voter suppression laws are enacted, that actually voting increases because people push back over the overtness. And and the more overt it is, the more likely that there'll be a, a stronger pushback in terms of trying to reassert that democratic impulse to have your voice heard. That said, I don't know. It seems like the last gasp because it's so desperate of the fear of loss of the white supremacy sort of culture. It's scary to think about where it might end. What were you thinking, David? Two things. One, my friend Tim Beal, a New Testament and a scripture scholar, he talks about the idea of a disaster crop. And when something like an orange tree is a, is sick and is about to die, it will oftentimes create a super abundance of fruit. Then it will undergo its demise. And the hopeful thing to think about is that somehow this is a disaster crop of racism, that we're seeing these 400 plus legislative bills cropping up all over the nation because this is a last gasp. But unfortunately, what I have seen up close in my own community growing up in the South is the reproduction of these ideologies in young people and the the ways in which, you know, the kids that I went to kindergarten with by the time that I was in high school with these same kids, they were in a very different place morally than I was. And they thought very differently about the way that society should be structured than I did. And so I think to speak to what we're talking about and to kind of frame into a question that Dan asked a moment ago, in one sense, this is about catechesis. This is about the moral persuasion of people to do good for the common good. And that's where we're really seeing the vacuum of people like the bishops not standing up and taking strong stands on issues like this. We need that in some sense, I I would say. Yeah, and I'm I'm just going to predict that I think there probably will be some sort of statement by some sort of bishop, because once the large corporations have taken their stand, then that provides a little cover. It's a little bit safer, I think, when it looks like more people are jumping on board with this. I noticed that the bishop's statement about the anti-Asian violence happening took a long time, but it eventually came from the USCCB. But it 
it was pretty darn late. So I don't know. I think it will come. What's interesting, and I don't know what's happening on the ground in parishes, but we haven't seen anything from the Georgia bishops yet. And our national correspondent is working on a piece right now and finding that actually some of these groups that are pushing these voter suppression laws, many of them headed by Catholics. And so Catholic involvement on the wrong side of this issue. So look for that story later this week. Yeah, I think just one last note on that, because that's that's really telling when you brought up, Heidi, the example of the anti-Asian racist statements, the kind of delay from the USCCB and from bishops. I mean, I keep going back to since at least the late 70s, the USCCB has been very poor in responding to America's original sin, as Jim Wallace and others call it, which is systemic racism. And I, I think, as was demonstrated in the 2018 document, which is very mediocre at best and really inadequate in its whole, open wide our hearts, the bishops never once acknowledge the reality of white privilege or white supremacy. And that is the flip side of the coin. And I think that's deliberate. It's a fear-driven omission that, A, they'd have to acknowledge their own role in the perpetuation of these injustices in our society and in our church, and B, they're going to really upset some people, as these corporations have. The, the question is, what kind of, as the late Congressman John Lewis put it, what kind of good trouble do we want to get in? And I think as we're celebrating the resurrection of the Lord, as we're in the middle of the octave of Easter right now, it's important to remember how Christ died. And it wasn't by accident, and it wasn't exclusively on religious grounds is because he was crucified. He was executed as an enemy of the state, as an insurrectionist. And he did so because people were threatened by his good trouble. And I think that's a that's a Easter message for all of us, especially our brother bishops responsible for their pastoral responsibility to lead and to teach. But for all of us who are baptized, it goes on both ends to David's point about catechesis, how we live our lives and how we inform and shape the next generation and open ourselves to ongoing conversion, especially if you look like the three of us, white women and men. This is really important. And it's sad that the vacuum is filled by Delta and Coca-Cola. It's not too late for us because there's always, as the disciples after the resurrection came slowly to realize, there's always time for conversion. And as we are praying for conversion, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, and I'm here with David Dalt and Dan Horan. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Last week, the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd began with heart-wrenching testimony from witnesses. One of the witnesses was Darnella Frazier, who's now 18, who had recorded the now-famous video in which the world witnessed Chauvin, a white man, kneeling on the neck of Floyd, who was black and handcuffed, for nine minutes and 29 seconds. During her testimony, Frazier broke down in tears like many of the other witnesses who took the stand this week. Those bystanders who were present on the scene, some of whom can be heard on that recording, calling out for Chauvin to stop suffocating Floyd, were forced to relive the trauma of watching a shackled man killed while in police custody. The witnesses, most of whom are people of color, repeatedly expressed their own despair that they could not have done more, that they felt helpless, that they identified with Floyd or saw in his treatment 
the thousands of experiences people of color have when subjected to the force of the police. As the New York Times columnist Frank Bruni wrote on Sunday, quote, Chauvin's inhumanity is indisputable, and the depth of the mark that it left on the people who intersected with it has been heartbreaking to behold. What happened near the corner of 38th Street and Chicago Avenue on May 25, 2020, was a chilling lesson in power and powerlessness. It both validated and stoked their fears, end quote. Although the damning video seems like incontrovertible evidence of murder, and the eyewitness and medical expert accounts so far appear to confirm it, Chauvin's defense team will try to instill, quote, reasonable doubt in order to avoid a murder conviction. The track record of recourse for police officers who have assaulted or killed people of color is, in the American context, not good. And so the outcome of this trial is not so much an open and shut case as the general public might assume. Dan, there's a lot to take in here. You've been following some of the trial this week. What are you thinking so far about this trial? Oh, gosh, I'm thinking a lot of things. And you're right to say I've been following some of it this week because it's a lot to take in. And news agencies like The New York Times and the Associated Press and, and a lot of the cable networks have been airing the trial live so folks can tune in and, and see this. But I think of at least maybe three things to start with. One is how this is, you know, reflective of a collective trauma and re-traumatizes people who are exposed to this, in particular minoritized communities. I'm thinking of people of color who are hearing the testimony, who are reliving, who are watching that nine minute and 29 second long video again and again, and how disturbing it is and how it triggers understandably so, a lot of pain and suffering and oppression and experiences of subjugation and injustice. And it's just horrifying. It's just horrifying that we have to go through this, which brings me to my second point. As you mentioned, Heidi, I think like a lot of people, it seems open and shut. You have this video that that is just evident. You take that along with the medical examiner's report of the cause of death, and there's no question. And yet we've been in other cases, and we see other cases that are about to go to trial, I think of those who killed Ahmed Arbery in Georgia and others who have yet to begin their trials. I think back to the 90s. I was young. I was a young teenager at the time of the Rodney King trial, the trial of the officers who uh, beat Rodney King within really an inch of his own life. I could go through a list that would take us the whole rest of our time of cases in which common sense would dictate that an injustice and a crime was committed and, and the transgressors were let off. This is all the more complicated by the historic record in the United States of police getting off on these things and the kind of prejudice for leniency toward law enforcement officers. That brings me to my third point, which is one of the consistent themes that I've seen throughout the week in the testimony of the witnesses. These are just including people on the street who are there, as well as professionals like EMS staff and firefighters who are called to the scene. And the real sense of impotence, the lack of power and the lack of recourse that keeps surfacing, as the New York Times reported as well, some of the witnesses talked about calling the police on the police. At least three of the witnesses called 911 to try to have somebody to intervene. But well, think about that for a minute, that the police, there were, there were four police officers there, one of whom was actively suffocating, you know, a man who was detained, who had handcuffs behind his back, who was 
completely vulnerable. And where do you turn in that moment when the people who are ostensibly entrusted with the care of protection are the sources of such crime and violence? And to hear even some firefighters who said that the police officers would not allow them to go and attend to Mr. Floyd. In fact, one firefighter, she she testified that she was giving instructions. She was calling out to the police officers about what they should do when she arrived. She's like, if you're not going to let me to him, then you need to begin chest compressions. You need to do this. She tried to step by step walk them through what could be done and they did nothing. And so I, I don't know, honestly, what to think beyond trying to juggle and discern all these different factors. I'm curious, how are the two of you been processing the trial so far? It's been very disturbing to have to hear the the details of the of his killing again. And I know that as a white person, it's not me who's being re-traumatized. It's people of color who are having to relive the whole summer events all over again. I will say that the idea that the defense is likely to bring up details about George Floyd's life that make him seem somehow guilty or deserving of this punishment is really concerning to me because obviously the police need to do their job in detaining violent criminals or would-be criminals. But this idea that somehow he deserved this is really indicative of how little Black lives matter to people. And the the death penalty with no judge or jury is somehow decided right there on the street. We would not stand for that with any quote unquote criminal of who's not a person of color. So I think it's just I'm holding my breath because I know, like you, Dan, what the history is of leniency against police for these kinds of crimes. And I also know then in the wake of that, the anger and frustration that's unleashed in in, from communities of color and, and allies in the wake of those kinds of decisions. So I'm praying that's not what we're going to be looking at in, in the near future. But I just know the whole trial itself is painful and really causing me to think again about the value of all human life and especially Black lives. Catholics talking about a culture of life and the right to life should be very uncomfortable with the idea that state actors, those who are arms of the state, can have summary judge and jury capacities to remove the life from someone basically at a whim. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing that for certain citizens in our country, there are absolutely no restrictions on the state exercising complete violence against them violence to the extreme of even killing them for things that are not capital offenses. And in the same way that Catholics should be standing up against death row and standing up against the death penalty, we should also be standing up against those who are using arbitrary state power in order to deprive people of their life. And especially recording this the day after Easter. Christians in the early church were very wary of the state because the state often exercised violence against them. Now that we're two millennia on, and now that we've had Constantine and all, and we've become very comfortable with states existing alongside the Christian churches, Christians are a majoritarian religious power, and we have forgotten the vulnerable. And this was always a danger. If you read back through the Old Testament, any time that the people of Israel would get power, 
God would remind them, hey, you used to be slaves and you used to be immigrants and you used to be very vulnerable, which means that the slaves, the immigrants and the vulnerable in your midst must be protected or you're actually not doing my will. And when Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees and he says, you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you give the tithes of anise and cumin, but you lay off the weightier matters of justice and mercy and the law. The law that he's talking about is this law of caring for the vulnerable. And this is the thing that I've said before on the show, and I know that you two agree with me, but I also want listeners to hear. If you want to understand what the gospel means to me and what we proclaim as resurrection, it's that if I'm going to be a follower of Christ, the people around me who are vulnerable should be feeling more safe that I'm there, not less safe. They should feel like if there's a bullet heading for them, I will step in the way of it. If there's some kind of danger for them, that I will stand with them in solidarity and face the danger or even get in the way so that I take the danger and they don't, and I use my privilege and my power to shield them. To me, that's what Christianity is at its fundament. To me, that's what Christ did, the power of God laying that off, stepping in place for us in order that while we were yet sinners, Christ could be in the world reconciling us to God. Now, I'm getting preachy, Dan. But 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 to me, that's what is getting lost here. And we instead, and I'm thinking now of Jeff Sessions quoting Romans 13, we fold our Christianity into state power instead of using our Christianity as a check and a question to unvanquished state power. And to me, I'm just I'm disturbed by a lot of these things. But for me, theologically, that's where I'm landing on this right now. What you're talking about, David, reminds me of a column I wrote last summer about the parallels between the kind of systemic impunity, the legalized impunity of law enforcement who regularly are let off the hook for killing of unarmed black women and men. And this was really in the wake of the uh, Breonna Taylor, effectively lack of indictment or exoneration of the officers responsible for her death in that botched raid. But one of the things I point out is that it's similar to the clergy abuse crisis. You know, this kind of sense of not holding people accountable systems that err on the side of the of of the transgressor rather than the victims or victim survivors, at least, and this is I'm not in any way saying that the church collective has been been made clear or that we're good to go. There's a lot of work that still needs to be done, but at least in the wake of the Boston Globe Spotlight reporting and others, the, the great work of NCR for many decades, even before that. There came a reckoning that was undeniable in the U.S. context that led at least to the Dallas Charter of 2002 and 2003. There's been no such thing in, you know, law enforcement in the United States. I mean, it's all tied up with the history of police forces in terms of going after runaway slaves. For those who don't know, you can look this up. It's readily accessible about the origins of the whole office of sheriff in the United States is tied to this, to the way that the courts have been slanted to the fact that these are, and I don't think it's an exaggeration, to talk about law enforcement execution of people of color being a modern-day lynching. Because like you said, Heidi, that this is a capital crime, it's capital punishment, where an individual or a small group of individuals who are white, largely, get to decide who lives and who dies. And that's what lynching mobs are all about. I, I, I don't know what that looks like, but I think it's, again, symptomatic of the the deep what you know father brian massingale friend of the podcast often describes as a deep soul sickness which is systemic racism and it's not a one off thing it's not one trial is going to resolve or alleviate 
the problem. It's deeply embedded, kind of like what we were saying in the last segment, David, you had brought this up about the context of Georgia. It's not just the deep South. It's not just places like Georgia or Mississippi or Alabama. This is everywhere. And it's not just our broader culture. It's in our church, too. So I don't think we can be let off the hook. It, many of these police forces are or have been in the past comprised of many people from immigrant communities, Irish and other Catholic immigrants. And the racism that we see in the police forces is also in our churches. I don't think it's a coincidence that when we looked at the news of the last week or so to determine what we would talk about on the podcast today, they both involve injustice against people of color. And so I can't think of anything more deserving of our church's attention in terms of, as you said, David, being this church that that is there for the dispossessed in the in our our country or our world. Yet we don't see that yet. And I'm continually discouraged by that. But of course we are the church. And so I think we don't have to just sit back and wait for the bishops to issue a statement. There's a lot that we can be doing. And I'm encouraged by some of the reports of Catholics and other churches in Minnesota who are prepared and already witnessing to the importance of this trial. So we know that, unfortunately, we will likely be coming back to talk more about this trial in weeks to come. But for right now, we're going to take a break. Thank you for listening. This is The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, I get together with Dan Haran and Heidi Schlumpf to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. On Easter Sunday, Catholic churches saw some of their biggest crowds in more than a year as the holiday attracted masked and vaccinated worshipers celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. Even as coronavirus numbers are once again rising in what some fear may be a third wave of the virus. But what will happen after the pandemic is over? Will those numbers rebound? As we contemplate how our lives will change post-pandemic, it's worth considering what our faith lives will look like. Some predict that people will be excited to return to their pre-pandemic lives. If absence makes the heart grow fonder, then perhaps churches will see a spike in mass attendance, celebration of the sacraments, and other parish involvement. But others are concerned that the pandemic will only have accelerated the trend of declining involvement in religious institutions, including Catholic parishes. Just before Easter, Gallup Poll released survey results that showed a continued decline in church membership in the United States, with the number of Americans who belong to a formal religious institution being in the minority for the first time since this poll started in 1937. Only 47% of those polled said that they belonged to a church, synagogue, or mosque, compared to roughly 70% during the last six decades. Most of the decline has happened since 2000, and the decrease has been steeper for Catholics than for Protestants. The number of Catholics belonging to a parish dropped from 76% in 2000 to 58% in 2020. Of course, this trend reflects similar drop-offs in other memberships and a general loss of trust in institutions. So what will this mean for the church in the United States? Heidi, do you think the pandemic will further hurt religious practice, or will it be an opportunity for renewed spiritual life? Well, David, I think it's going to 
be both. <laughs> so yes, both and. So the number of people that I've been chatting with just about what they're expecting, you know, people who work in parishes, others who work for the church, everyday Catholics, I don't think people are going to come back to the levels that they were before. You know, people have gotten used to sleeping in on Sunday mornings. Watching Mass on, on a video doesn't do it for me, but for some people it's enough to do that occasionally. I do think this decline that people were talking about decades ago. I mean, I remember all these stories about Generation X and their declining religious involvement. And at the time, I remember a lot of boomers saying, don't worry, they'll come back when they have kids. And guess what? They didn't come back. They did have kids and they raised those kids without a faith, many of them. And now we have uh, new generations who aren't even familiar with religious institutions. Now, I do think that opportunity is there, though. And I know the CNS story that we ran about that Gallup poll had some comments from folks saying that while this is not a positive trend, obviously, about parish involvement, that it didn't measure people's belief in God or their spirituality. And that's definitely true. And so I think there is this opportunity to do things differently, to reinvent ourselves, to respond more with the gospel message. You know, see our previous conversation about how if the church were really responding to racial injustice, what might we be attracting? So I think it's both and. It's sobering news, and I think we have reason to be concerned, but I see an opportunity there. What do you think, David? Well, I want to pick up on that because there, there's a story, it may be an apocryphal story, about President Lincoln back in the day. And he went to hear a sermon, and he was walking back to the White House with his aide, or traveling back to the White House with his aide, and his aide asked him, did you like the sermon? And Lincoln said it was an okay sermon. And then the aide asked, but it wasn't a great sermon? And Lincoln's response was, it wasn't a great sermon because the sermon asked nothing great of us. And I'm thinking about that in light of what you were just saying, Heidi. The bishops, the church has been really a one-trick pony for the last three decades in many ways in terms of beating a culture war drum. But when we really need for the church to stand up and be a moral voice, it has been strangely silent. And so for me, I find myself really wanting to pass on to my children. When my children see me interacting with a person who is homeless or a person who is indigent and in need of assistance, and we're we're buying food or we're helping with housing or we're doing those sorts of things. My kids will ask me, why are we doing this? And I'll say, because we're Catholic and this is what Christ taught us to do. That's the message that I want my kids to get about what Catholicism is. But when I go to mass with my kids, oftentimes they're hearing a very different message. And so for me, this is the dissonance that makes me feel very connected to my Catholicism, but not necessarily so connected to liturgy and parish life. And I, I don't know that I'm irregular in that. I feel like in some ways the Gallup poll and what you're saying about people who are who are still deeply religious, but maybe not liturgical, to make a play on that old spiritual but not religious, I feel like I'm religious but not necessarily liturgical right now. That's the friction that I'm feeling. Yeah, I, it makes a lot of sense to me. And I think what's also interesting is the questions that are being asked and not being asked by those who are entrusted with positions of leadership in the church. And so with this kind of response, like with the polling that came out about a year or two ago, again, as a theologian, I was a little bit unamused with the phrasing of the polling. This was around the, the real presence in the Eucharist. I think it was misleading and, and people went off in lots of different directions 
interpretively that may or may not have been sufficient or accurate. Nevertheless, when these kinds of things come up, oftentimes what happens from those in positions of leadership in the church, a question is surfaced and committees are formed and studies presented that seeks to respond to the question, what is wrong with them? Meaning the 53% of people who don't identify with an institutional religious structure. It's the wrong question. The question really ought to be, what is wrong with us? What are we doing wrong? And it reminds me of the 2012 GOP post-election autopsy in which there was this attempt, at least on some level of leadership in the Republican Party, to consider why is it that they were losing more and more of the share of the vote, particularly of minoritized communities. This was after Mitt Romney lost uh, to Barack Obama in his reelection. And they asked the right question, actually, which is, what are we doing wrong? Why are we not appealing to this broad swath of the population? But what we saw happen four years later was a complete disregard for that, that a lot of people threw that out because they did not want to grapple with the truth of the question and what the implications were that arise from that. Frankly, I, I see the same playbook playing out, and I don't think it's coincidental when we look at some of the politics and sectarian engagement with leadership in the USCCB. I, I see a similar sort of thing playing out. It doesn't have to be this way. And I think, David, to your point about what's at the core of what it is you know, we're about and who we say we are, I don't think these questions, and it's not everybody, I don't mean to paint with such a broad brush, but it's particularly those who are entrusted with setting the agenda of things like USCCB committees or statements or, you know, the public facing kind of presence. And there was an article, maybe it was a column, and I can't find it right off the top of my head, that I saw within the last day or two about the rhetoric of right-wing Christianity is contributing to this distaste of those who formerly identified as Christian with these churches. So it's not just Catholicism, it's more broadly too. But the more that church leaders move away from the gospel and focus more on partisan and culture warrior sort of issues, the less that people are going to see the gospel of Jesus Christ lived out. And that, as Pope Francis reminds us time and again, is what is attractive about our Christian faith. Christ draws people, not with a bat, not with a ruse of a carrot, not with a hip band, not with a culture warrior discourse, but with the love of God that is self-sacrificial. And and I don't see a whole lot of self-sacrifice in a lot of Christian leadership, frankly. Yeah, and I think that hypocrisy is really something that young people are attuned to and are just not going to put up with in their institutions. And I'm encouraged by young people who are asking those questions because I think that they're calling us to some sort of conversion, some sort of re-energizing, this idea that this could be an opportunity to make substantive changes to the way that we've been church for decades, maybe even, you know, centuries is exciting to me, but I think that it's also can be very messy and very scary. And so I think these declines that we're seeing are so substantial and the numbers are so big and they're not going away after just one generation. I think that attention must be paid at some point. I was watching the Good Friday liturgy from my parish and maybe Good Friday doesn't always attract the largest crowds necessarily anyway. And the average mass goer at my parish, which is very, you know, has many families, is still pretty old, but it's even older now. And that might be partially because the older generations here in Illinois have had access to the vaccine before people under 50 have. 
But it's concerning to me. There's going to be this smaller, purer church that some in church leadership wanted. And at a certain point, not only is that hard to sustain financially in a large institution, but it's not what Christianity is about, which is go and tell the nations. And this is for everyone. So I, too, am optimistic that the message of Christianity will speak to people. But I think the institution is pretty slow in adapting. I think we can learn a lot from the disability community about what things could look like after COVID. And for listeners that are unfamiliar with what I mean, some of my theological work is thinking about the ways in which abled bodies and disabled bodies occupy theological spaces. And one of the things that I have been hearing from disabled commentators is that all through the last decade, all through the the kind of rise of these different technologies, the disabled community, the differently abled community has been saying, hey, can we use some of these technologies so that we can get access to the spaces that physically we haven't been able to get access to before? Can we work differently? Can we think differently about physically showing up? And the answer from business and the answer from educational institutions has been, no, we, we really don't have the bandwidth to, to think in that way. And now COVID has made everyone rethink physical spaces and rethink showing up. And now the disabled community activists are saying, moving out of this, we can return to normal, and I'm scare quoting that, which means going back to the way that things were exclusionary, or the extraordinary variety of bodies and the extraordinary variety of experiences can be accounted for in new ways as we move into a new normal that is more accepting and more hospitable to those that have been excluded in the past. Well, just to pick up on that, David, there's a great piece. It's difficult to read in some ways because it's so moving and it should call, again, church leaders at the local level and diocesan level and national level to pick up exactly this question you're raising when we think about persons with disabilities. And it's an op-ed piece that ran this morning in NCR by Aaron Murphy titled, I am a lifelong wheelchair user and I don't feel welcome in the church. And she details her own experience as somebody with persistent disability and the ways in which she's been discriminated against and her life has been made difficult to feel unwelcome, to, to not have direct access to pastoral care, to the sacraments, the way that people treat her, ignore her, or treat her like a pariah at times. It's a very powerful and moving essay, and I'm so glad to see it run. But I think it speaks to your point, which is a more localized version of, you know, what you hear some people talk about with a false nostalgia. What we need to do is go back to before the Council of Trent. That's when things were great. Like, it was not great back then. <laughs> was not great two years ago. And this is case in point. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. When the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed, the churches in general lobbied and won grandfather exceptions that allowed them not to have to make physical reconfigurations in order to accommodate people who are differently abled, people who are disabled. These basic ADA requirements that businesses have to attend to, churches were able to use a religious exemption to get out of. And so this is the kind of thing that I hope will change in the new normal after COVID, not a fallback on religious exemptions in order to have privileges and kind of a privileged space of exclusion, but rather a pouring out of hospitality, a pouring out of, of accepting the broken. And I mean the broken in all different ways, not just in terms of physical limitation, but emotional limitation, those that are considered to be somehow beyond the pale of the church, all these things. Exactly what, Heidi, you said a moment ago, where the church doesn't need to be a smaller, purer remnant. It needs to be a messier, bigger hospital in that sense. We need to be expanding the the, the wings of care, and I'm using that in all senses of that word wings. We need to be expanding that so that we're encompassing 
the brokenness that's out there because people are going to be coming out of COVID with not just visible scars and economic scars, but invisible traumas that will need to be attended to for probably decades to come. Like a lot of damage has been done in this year in various ways that the church should be the first one to step into the fray and actually begin to address. I'm fearful instead it's going to be withdrawing and trying to think about this kind of smaller, purer remnant, and it just makes me sick in my stomach. Yeah, I think when we look back as a student of history, it's hard to imagine changes when you're living in the midst of them. But when you look back, you can see, oh, this was happening and there was a buildup to this. And then there was some sort of precipitating event that maybe moved things a little more quickly. And then we attribute a major change to that, the civil rights movement in the 60s or various different things in our own country's history. And I'm very confident that this pandemic is going to be a catalyst for all kinds of societal change afterwards. And we've tried to avoid doing too many predictive articles about what it will look like, because I think we're not sure. And once you put in print your prediction, then you have to have the ramifications of being right or wrong. But I think one thing we can predict is that there is going to be massive change in the way we do business, in the way we have friend groups and every aspect of our life. And so to think that it's not going to have a massive change to the way we do faith or a religious practice would be crazy, especially when some of those changes were already underway and those shifts were already happening before the pandemic hit. And I think we need to come to terms with something that we've been talking about or at least gesturing toward in our conversation, which is I, I don't think the numbers are going to come back. They're just not going to come back at, at the rate that they were before the pandemic. And that exacerbates a trend that we've already talked about. You know, here in Chicago, there's this process of restructuring, of closing a third or more of the parishes. And statistically, th there's evidence that shows that dioceses that do that, which is a necessary process. That, that a huge percentage of people in those parishes just will not, they just stop going. And so you have that kind of double whammy across the country in a lot of dioceses as well. The other thing that I think is worth noting is the way, David, you were talking about a smaller, purer church, which is an allusion to something Pope Benedict XVI talked about early in his pontificate. Actually, I think it was at the funeral of John Paul II that he made the first made this kind of reference. It has been a rally cry of certain people who self-identify on the right in Catholicism. It's a post-factum justification in this case. And again, it goes back to my opening questions about what's wrong with them versus what's wrong with us. It is a projecting the problem onto the faithful and not on the church leaders so that when fewer people do return, it's going to be, I, I just anticipate it being used in some circles as a self-justification for a superiority to a, a purer sense of, well, we're the faithful remnant and those who have walked away, they're not real Christians, they're not real Catholics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore use that to justify excluding the real issues, the real concerns, whatever we need in terms of a U.S. Catholic equivalent of the 2012 GOP autopsy, post-election autopsy. I think it would be worthwhile for there to be a scholarly, non-internal USCCB-funded, post-pandemic Catholic life autopsy in the church. And, you know, get sociologists, nonpartisan ones, get, you know, even non-Catholics. I think of some of the greatest sociologists of Catholic Christianity and 
in U.S. history have been non-Catholics. And I think of his name's escaping me right now, but there was a, a Presbyterian who for many years was on faculty at Georgetown, who is just one of the leading figures. But he could see with a critical eye because he didn't have the same dog in the fight, as it were. And so that kind of thing is really what's before us. Honestly, I don't have much confidence that kind of thing is going to happen. But I think that's what we need if we're going to be the responsive body of Christ that we are as the church, and that we actually are open to, surprise, surprise, the Holy Spirit, which continues to move and renew the face of the earth. But as I often say, I think most Christians, most Catholics, most Catholic leaders are Holy Spirit atheists. They forget about the Holy Spirit. They ignore the Holy Spirit. It's time to listen to the Holy Spirit. Listeners, we would love to hear what you think the future of the church is going to look like. So please do tweet to us at FrancisFXPod on Twitter, write to us on Facebook, and certainly send us your emails. But for right now, that's going to be the end of our discussion for today. Father Dan, Heidi, thank you both for being with us. And again, happy Easter, and may the blessings of the season be with you and yours. And with your spirit. And alleluia. <laughs> The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center.org. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfectpod at gmail.com. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We have seasons worth of episodes going back into history. We hope that you listen to all of them, and we'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>